Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. big week of central bank decisions with President Donald Trump casting a long political shadow over this week's meeting of the Federal Reserve in more ways than one. Joining me to discuss is Bruce Kasman, JP Morgan Chief Economist and Managing Director of Global Research and he joins us here in New York. Good morning to you Bruce. Good morning. Big week. Big, big week ahead and let's begin with the Fed. This administration thinks we can have sustainable GDP growth of three plus percent. The Federal Reserve says otherwise. How does that tension materialize over the next couple of months? Well, over the next couple of months, the Fed moves in September. I'm not sure there's a lot of reason for the administration to criticize the Fed, but maybe we continue to get it. I think the issue for the Fed is they're not quite yet at neutral. Uh, They see an economy that is going to likely deliver growth close to 3% over the next couple of quarters, but labor markets keep tightening, inflation continues to drift up. It's telling them we're growing above where the sustainable pace is and policy needs to be more uh, close to neutral. Did you see anything in Friday's print that gives you confidence that this could be sustainable? Um, Well, I think in the short term, yes, because you have an economy which, yes, that number was juiced up by a big trade contribution that's going to go away. But we have good, solid underpinnings in terms of both business spending and household spending. The fiscal stimulus is still kicking in. And boy, that was a very weak inventory number, which sets you up nicely for I the second half really of the year. I it was really interesting that a lot of people focused on the contribution from trade, but the contribution of trade was offset from inventories, wasn't yes. it, Bruce? Yeah. So I think in the second half, you lose the trade and you gain the inventories. And there's a, there's a little bit of a negative probably on balance there, but not a big negative. So we think the third quarter is going to be something like three and a half, which isn't a big step down. And we think the second half is probably going to average at least 3%. So we're still doing well, but we're doing well and we're going to have a tightening labor market. One thing we haven't mentioned is we got an employment report this week. We do. And we think we're going to get another 200,000 gain, a dip in the unemployment rate. I think what's interesting is we're not seeing wage pressures build very rapidly, but I think there is a sign that underneath the surface, labor bargaining power is starting to firm here. What I also find interesting is that there's a renewed focus on the participation rate starting to creep higher. And whether this administration starts to communicate towards the Federal Reserve, perhaps with even more sort of conviction that, hey, guys, wait, look, the way you're thinking about the labor market over the last five years is dead wrong because people are starting to come back in. Well, people have, and the prime age participation rate has moved up. But if you look at the noise around month-to-month data, the participation rate has done nothing but stay stable here. Yeah. Uh, And I think the basic point here is there are too many people like me in the workforce, the baby boomers, who are gradually starting to move into retirement age. uh, And that's offsetting the benefits of bringing those workers back. Well, within that is the labor participation rate and some of these other dynamics and it goes, I don't know if John gets this mail. John gets a lot more mail on, um, you know, World Cup and all that. I, I get mail that says when Bruce Kasman says the economy's great and we're fully employed, no one believes it. And, and Washington Post had a whole series of charts a week ago, you know, from Bloomberg that underscored that. Are we fully employed? Well, I think we have to be careful what we mean by fully employed. Fully employed doesn't mean that we can attract more people to come into the workforce. What it does mean is in order to do so, you have to incentivize them more by paying them a higher wage. Why isn't that happening? Well, it's happening, but very modestly. I think the 
question around that is how much of it is due to bad things, which is that uh, labor bargaining power yeah. is just structurally weak, and how much of it's productivity weakness, which has been a, a key theme in the economy, and how much of it is just that the pressures are brewing here, and we're going to start to see it reflected. It it takes time. Maybe the unemployment rate can get into the high threes before we start to see that pressure build. Um, I think there's a lot to debate on that, yeah. but I think I think there's no doubt that somewhere between a 4% unemployment rate and zero, we're going to have right. problems. And I think there's no doubt that at a 3% growth rate, the unemployment yeah. rate's going to keep falling. John nailed the savings issue. The revi- to me, the biggest deal was the revision of savings. Yeah. Was that a gain to the elite? Did the, did the savings charts swing up to more savings in America just because of a statement that the rich got richer? Um, I, I think the savings rate... It, by the way, is one of the worst measured pieces of economic news. The average revision to the U.S. savings rate over the last 30 years yeah. has been from the first print to where we are now is four percentage points. So anytime we have a conversation about the savings rate, we should realize it's poorly measured. Yeah. Yes, we had a lot of proprietary income of, of people who are working self-employed. So you may you can debate where that shows up on the distribution of income. Um, but I think the basic point is do not have a debate I think in any short-term horizon over the savings rate level telling you something about where households are. Uh, for what it's worth, the revision does suggest there's more fuel in the tank for households. And I think we are seeing household behavior uh, look better today than it was over the most of the past expansion uh, where some of that saving was built up. I caught up with a series of uh, sources of mine on the buy side on Friday and asked them just a very basic question. If I offered you the outcome of either the Federal Reserve meeting this week or the Bank of Japan meeting this week, which one would you like right here, right now on Friday? And they all said to me, the Bank of Japan. Obviously. The focus seems to be the BOJ overnight. What are you looking for from the Bank of Japan as we go to sleep in New York and wake up tomorrow? Well, I think part of it is that we don't quite know what the BOJ is going to do. The BOJ has a tension the Fed doesn't have right now. Uh, the BOJ is not hitting its inflation target. The last inflation report was actually very disappointing. So there's every reason for them to hold the line. In fact, you could argue they should be doing more. But they're sitting there watching the flatness of the curve erode bank profitability, and they're not happy about that. So there's a, a tension here between financial stability and macroeconomic objectives. And certainly the, the news flow has suggested that that uh, is going to actually get them to give us a rise in the yield control target with a dovish signal about forward guidance. Somewhat strange then that they've stepped in three times over the last week to cap yields. Can you yeah. reconcile that with a shift overnight? Because I struggle to. Well, I think I think part of the issue here is that when you're dealing with a controlled tenure yield, anytime you want to signal changes, even if they're very small changes, you have a really hard time controlling that in the market. And I think they're doing that. They haven't made the change yet. Yields have already moved up to 10 basis points. Their target is zero. Yeah. At the current point, if they don't come in and uh, stabilize that, they're going to have a much bigger problem. Bruce, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Bruce Caswell with J.P. Morgan uh, with, uh, I think, some optimism. What I heard there, we didn't talk about it here, but on television earlier, uh, was the fiscal stimulus coming along with a half percent calculation uh, by uh, his uh, shop. Leslie Vingemurray with his chat mouse. Leslie, this is all below the radar. The, the leader of Italy and controversial is going to visit with the president. What will occur? 
Well, I think, you know, this is President Trump recognizing that this is a leader who backed him at the G7 when he said we need to invite Russia yeah. back in, who's, you know, looking, uh, you know, for Conte. This is wonderful for his position domestically. So I think, you know, the affirmation of, it, of an ally, of a partner, of a friendly, uh, friendly voice in Europe at a time when things haven't been great with Europe, but somebody who has a, takes a similarly, you know, his country's taking government's taking a similarly hard line on immigration. Right. <clears throat> is open to Russia. Um, I, I think this is, you know, forging his his net, his populist network. Well, um, in 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 John, I should mention this is Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte. Well done. And, and this is <laughs> not the Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini. Am wow. I doing okay? Wow, you spent the whole weekend practicing. <laughs> I, I, I'm with Manu <laughs> out save on me, YouTube. Leslie, save me, B, save me, Leslie. J. I can't get ch and k. Why not? I just, they're the worst. I'm going to put you in touch with my, my youngest sister, who, um, who speaks beautiful, fluent Italian. And maybe if you... Um, I said away la biblioteca, and that got me nowhere in the course. Okay, Leslie, let's move on. If, if you're Chancellor Angela Merkel, are you worried about today's meeting? Oh, I think yes. I mean, I think inevitably everybody's worried about what's happening in Italy. It doesn't, the optics of, you know, the, the Italian PM going across... Uh, to, to talk with Trump on the back of those comments about Russia, you know, things have in the short term gotten a little bit better with the EU on trade, but there's still this, this broader conversation. What are Trump's real objectives when it comes to Europe and who does he feel closest to? And right now it still looks like he feels closest to the wrong part yeah. of Europe. Yeah, Rachel Donadio in the, the Atlantic has a really timely article. Italy's voters aren't anti-immigration but their government is. And, they, you know, whether it's the United States or it's Italy, that's a huge tension, Leslie Vingemarie, isn't it, between sort of the humanitarian kind of thing and, and voters saying enough and governments that have taken a stand. Yeah, but, you know, voters are divided. There's, of course, I mean, in the U.S., right, and this is an immigrant nation. People understand and have long understood the importance of immigrants to the economy and just morally and ethically to the country, um, to the, you know, the fabric of the country. At the same time, the rhetoric has been very powerful with a certain segment of the population in Europe. It's powerful on the back of, you know, is Italy in effect being a frontline state on the immigration crisis, on the migration crisis. And uh, in the U.S., um, there's certainly a, a very uh, certain contingent that is that Trump is speaking to. So it's that forging, you know, it, at the elite level, right? Trump and, yeah. um, and Conte. It's uh, it's very it's it is playing a certain kind of politics that you're right to point to. But Leslie, we do often confuse two really important issues, and one is a refugee crisis, and the other is an yes. immigration crisis. Can you just That's talk right. me through why those are two very important distinctions to make? Well, because you know, there's refugees have a right under international law to be protected, to be given um, access, and uh, but but leaders in the current in the current context, are reluctant. You know, there's a there's a playing on the uh, there's there's a desire to kind of talk just about the migration crisis and not to differentiate because the numbers are so vast. It's complicated to differentiate. It's not always easy to differentiate between between a refugee who has legitimate right to be protected yeah. under international law and and a migrant. So, Leslie, for a lot of people and for a lot of the electorate in a place like Italy. At the moment, they look to the likes of Matteo Salvini and Giuseppe Conte, who heads this government, as those that are actually awake to the reality of what is happening in a country like Italy on the front line of both the refugee and immigration crisis. And I'm just wondering, for those with a more liberal view of the world, 
what is the election winning argument? How do those individuals get into power? And what is the argument on an issue like the refugee crisis and on another issue like the immigration crisis that actually resonates with the electorate? Well, I mean, I think the the reality is that it's it's an argument, but it's got to be backed up. Now, there, you know, it's clearly the case that even for those who are very sympathetic to the plight of refugees who want to um, keep keep some sort of protection in place, there's got to still be a very effective regime in place that can maintain borders. Otherwise, inevitably, right, the space is open towards populists to manipulate the the language of fear and um, and are successful in doing so. So. Cooperation with Europe, emphasizing the importance of protecting refugees while, while not denying the very real problem of, um, of right. managing and sharing uh, the immigrants. What would you call the International Relations Foundation of the U.S. right now? I mean, it's not, you know, as, as Farid would say, a post-American world, or maybe it's not a clash of civilizations. Thank you, Mr. Huntington. What What is the underlying theory that drives U.S. international relations? Well, you know, the big debate, as you well know, Tom, right now, is whether this is just an aberration, whether the U.S. will get back on track and start supporting the institutions that it has created and, and supported and shored up for 70 years or more, um, or whether Trump is really about Trumpism, about an under, underlying social economic change, and, and that we're just going to see more of this. But I think right now people are very worried. And I'd say I would really point it not at the last 18 months, but really at the last two or three months, where those who thought that America was just going through a bad time are now starting to think that we're in this, that this is a permanent change, yeah. that the U.S. has been in decline, and it's, and it's now saying we will no longer back right. up and, sh- and shore up these institutions. We need to renegotiate our role in the world. We, well, we mentioned the Italian leader today visiting. Uh, what on your date calendar is the next thing, or have you checked out until Labor Day? I mean, what's <laughs> what's coming up in international relations? Well, I, I think the reality, right, is that a lot of what the U.S. is going to do, going to push forward on this this trade war with China, and but a lot of what's going to be driving U.S. engagement abroad is Donald Trump looking back at Congress and looking to the midterms and trying yeah. to play very carefully and very strategically to make sure that he uh, comes out of those midterms looking like a, a strong president. And this is tricky. He's not necessarily doing his his own party any favor by threatening to shut down the government if he doesn't get, you know, um, an immigration plan through. Yeah, but your study, so of the, your study of this, Leslie, is we're inside 100 days, and that's a big deal because that's where I am. I mean, there's, a, yeah. there's just something about 100 days. There's something about 100 days, but it's a very significant 100 days. And unfortunately, it right, it pulls everybody into a very short-term focus. All right. Well, this has been wonderful. Leslie Venjie-Murray, thank you so much. I really appreciate those comments on Italy. John, I think it's really below the radar. And, I, you know, I'll be honest, John, I watched RAI24, the Italian TV, just to listen to the language. Like, I'm serious. I'm yeah. trying to learn this. It's, it's, it's excruciatingly difficult. But, like... Without exaggeration, every other news story was on immigration. Yeah. Immigration. Try growing up in a household yeah. that when you went to the south of Italy, they didn't speak Italian. They spoke yeah. dialect. And a dialect that was nicknamed <clears throat> the Italian Chinese. Yeah. It was so difficult to understand my grandparents because they wouldn't speak to each other in Italian. They'd speak to each other in the local dialect, which was another language entirely. 
And my I've father read about would grow up and you learn bit. speaking dialect first. And it was abruptly first. different. Yeah, my father grew up down in the south of Italy and you learn to speak dialect first and your second language is the language of the country, Italian. Yeah. And this would happen across the whole of Italy as well. <clears throat> yeah. So we're going to teach you some southern dialect in Puglia um, after you've mastered Italian. How do you like that? I It's Excite so damn hard. Things. I can see the excitement I, sort of just sort of oozing from you this morning. It, it, for those of you that have kids particularly, for those of you older... And your kids go, well, yeah, I'm not fluent in Arabic yet, but I'm getting there. And this new thing in America, John, which is they know three languages and, 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 one, languages and one of them is Mandarin, <laughs> is I'm in awe. I, I am truly the ugly American. And I'll be honest, I'm not proud of it. Let me tell you what I'm proud about. John, Afterthought has just gone nuts over this song. What is the, this is what I'm what proud about. about. To do to me? We need to listen to what I heard to all what? weekend. Loving it. Toto. That's nice. You know, everything you've played in this slot, this is nice. I don't know why we're doing this. You don't know this song? I know this song, I just don't know why we're doing this. It's Afterthoughts, your favorite song. Why are we doing this? We need a media update. We're thrilled that Chris Morangi's with us, uh, with Gabelli, uh, as we uh, look at media. And of course, uh, Chris, to explain this, with the value investment proposition of Mario Gabelli and your team, you've always been in media. How much of a value is cable TV after the Fox, Disney, Comcast soap opera? Good morning, uh, Tom and Jonathan. Uh, great to be here. Um, yeah, the uh, cable uh, companies, Comcast, Charter, amongst others, are a bargain today, uh, more of a bargain than they were before uh, the counterbid for, for Fox. Um, these are good cash-flowing uh, entities, <clears throat> recurring cash flow, yeah. returning cash flow to shareholders, and uh, that's why we like them. Comcast did that shift from huge build-out to use of cash. On the Bloomberg, their five-year dividend growth is a lofty 4.22%. I'm assuming they can't sustain that. But can they actually deliver double-digit dividend growth? Is the the cash flow that persistent? Yeah, the, the return on capital and the cash flow are, are, are growing substantially as the business makes shifts from video, where they're giving up um, sixty cents of every dollar to the program to the uh, content companies, uh, to broadband, where they're keeping yeah. almost all that money and have a lot of pricing power. What's interesting here, folks, is we were talking with Craig Moffat and Moffat Nathanson uh, with his really important work on Comcast recently. And then Morangi is sort of on what's called the buy side, which is where he's actually making portfolio decisions and acquiring shares as well. If Comcast and cable's cheap, what's rich in media? Well, you, you point statistically to the, to the FANG stocks, obviously, and there's been sort of a Fang, anti-Fang trade, uh, when the Fangs are strong, some of the traditional media companies tend to be weak. I think that's uh, starting to break down a little bit. But, um, you know, doesn't mean that, that Google and Netflix and others don't have outstanding businesses. Netflix in particular just, you know, appears to trade at a with a minimal margin of safety. Yeah, I, th I thought it was interesting last week, Chris, that the outperformance came from the old economy 
equities and the underperformance came from the technology stocks. And I just wonder whether that's a one-off week or whether we're starting to transition to a world where we can build some confidence around what's happening in the global economy as Europe appears to have stabilised, China appears to be shifting towards easing, and we had that great growth here in the United States in the second quarter. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point, Jonathan. The, um, I think that the big tech names were viewed as uh, safe havens in, in some ways uh, as um, uh, growth elsewhere started to slow. So, you know, I think as we see a little bit of stabilization, um, the trend to value should, uh, should persist. Chris, the trend to value has been a really difficult one to buy into <laughs> been a long time. for the last year. And many of our listeners have going to have heard that again and again and again over the last couple of years. Why is it different this time? Well, we're hoping it's different this time. And, you know, at the, in the end, we think that value um, will always win out. Um, and, uh, you know, again, with a kind of a uh, – they're good places to be with a, maybe a choppy political environment but a stable economic environment. Does that lift financials then, Chris? It should. Uh, you know, obviously we watch the curve and, and what's happening with the uh, with the flattening of the curve, and I think that's been a little bit of an issue. But, um, you know, uh, yes, the financials, again, statistically look very cheap here. It's something that's dominated psychology. Is it dominated profitability? And I'm talking about the yield curve here, Chris. Has it dominated profitability? Because I didn't see it. Will it? No, I think you know the, the banks are, uh, are able to make money. They've, they're in a better regulatory situation than they have been in a long mm. time. Able to return a lot more capital to shareholders. Uh, so you know, I think there's. I think maybe we're overly focused on the uh, shape of the curve. Well, okay, we're overly focused on the shape of the curve, but it's determinant uh, to some extent forward. What about the shape of nominal GDP? I mean, if this is, if this GDP is as good as it gets, and it ebbs away, what ebbs in the Chris Morangi world? Do revenues ebb? Yeah, so uh, you know, we've been talking about actually uh, peak margins for years, uh, and you know, margins just continue to go up. I think we continue to find. Um, uh, companies continue to find ways to save money. Obviously, one of the themes from earnings the first two weeks has been uh, increased cost, input cost, steel, energy, labor, freight. And so we're starting to see some of those signs of inflation, which may, uh, which may impact margins. But, you know, we could get into another gear where we, where we uh, see an increase in productivity again. Well, Chris, I had this conversation with Jeff Rosenberg of BlackRock on Friday, and we kept asking this question, is this as good as it gets? And it may well be the highest rate of growth for any given quarter for this administration. But I think a bigger question, and this is something that Jeff was pushing over at BlackRock, is whether we've broken out into higher trend growth, away from the low twos and something closer to three. Do you have the confidence that we've done that, Chris? You know, we're, we're, we're bottom-up guys, and um, we look at uh, individual companies, and, and you know, the companies that we listen to on these earnings calls, um, you know, they see, for the most part, pretty clear skies ahead, um, you know, absent some of these uh, input costs and absent some of the risks of, of trade wars. But the consumer seems to be in good shape. Housing um, is okay, and, um, you know, globally, you know, seeing some, some pickup. It's funny that we've just had a quarter of north of 4%, and I've heard so many people talking about whether we get a recession at some point in the back end of next year or early 2020. Um, I've heard a lot of people discuss trade wars, and then Caterpillar comes out this morning and raises full-year yeah. guidance. <clears throat> full-year guidance raised in a quarter that was dominated by discussions about trade wars and tariffs. How do you reconcile those two things, Chris? Uh, yeah, well, you know, uh, make farmers great again, I guess, is the, the hat that I saw. Um, and, um, yeah, that, that certainly helps some of the uh, agricultural uh, uh, companies. And... Um, you know, the, the demand, global demand is, is there. I, I just, John, I think that's great a really to catch important up with Chris. insight. That's Gabelli Fund's co-chief investment yeah. officer. Um, that stock up this morning, doing really well, Tom. It's- 
Fim Fox and Tom Keenan on Monday. Lots of different themes. We mean, Jobs Day on Friday, BOJ, the Fed. We're going to talk Bank of England here. But wandering into the studios, I just assumed she would be in heat-struck London, enjoying the coolness of the London. I noticed the BBC map over the weekend where the, the, the weather came in. It was like very cool. Here is Stephanie Flanders. She's senior executive editor for economics and really has uh, moved forward a holistic economic coverage region uh, to region. So let's do sort of a UK vamp here right now. What's the biggest conundrum for Emma Ross Thomas, Simon Kennedy, and our vast Brexit team? Like what's the July mystery into August on Brexit right now? Well, look, you have you know how many question marks there are around the deal, whether we'll even have one. Is a second referendum now on the table? I think the whole sort of mood around Brexit has changed in the last month in a way that puts, yeah. puts a lot of stuff up in the air, raises the real prospect of a complete standoff in Parliament where you can just start to imagine people turning around and saying, you know what, the part in Parliament, they've messed it up. They haven't been able to do anything. We're going to have to go back to the people. So then you, you get to the one of your themes is there could be another referendum. You know, it's something that's in the air in a way that it wasn't a month or two ago. And I think, but then I think for me, the thing that gives me pause around that is, okay, if they're deadlocked on what kind of deal or whether they're going to agree to the deal that they're getting from the EU... How right. are they possibly going to agree on the questions for a referendum? And I think that's one of the reasons I have for thinking it won't happen, because how could you get an agreement on what are the two options right. you give to the give to the public? Do you say no deal is actually an option that people could choose with a risk that people would actually choose that and really right. hurt the economy? It's a, it's a tricky area. Upper left corner of the Telegraph today, when B. Johnson is writing up on Mr. J. Corbyn yeah. as well. Who is Boris Johnson writing to on his new platform. He is writing to his, I think, dwindling band of fans. You know, he's one of those people we, we feel like we've seen peak Boris, uh, whether regardless of whether he was foreign secretary or <laughs> <Peak> not. <Boris. laughs> but you know, even though he, he could still have commanded a lot of support even without, even while having left the government. But I think there is a feeling that he's sort of gone gone too far in, in, in some directions and ended up rather losing his way because he was stuck kind of um, not so, sort of semi-supporting to Theresa May and then backing out the last minute only because mm-hmm. somebody else had then had left before him. So he lost a lot of credibility around that. But I think the, the problem I have, I think the problem for the Bank of England and Mark Carney, who I interviewed for uh, the, the, the cover of a special issue, special economics issue we have of Bloomberg Markets this month, um, you know, the trouble for him is he's looking at a weaker economy, but also one that is probably uh, going to be uh, affected long term by this Brexit yeah. uncertainty and by the future deal. He's the cover story of uh, Bloomberg Markets, uh, Mark Carney. This is uh, your, your story. I'm, is he going to enjoy uh, more lenient immigration rules when it comes to the European <laughs> Union than most of the people that he oversees at the Bank of England? I suspect they would let him in. I mean, but what I guess there is a question. Because I mean, he's, he's from gonna, Canada. He's from Canada. He uh, And, of course, we're looking for a kind of Canada plus deal. I mean, Canada is one of the models for the future relationship. I think the interesting question has been that, that whether or not he would go back to Canada. And I did try and push him on that a little bit. And he was uh, he was dodging the question. We don't know what he's going to do at the end of next year. And we really don't know who's going to replace him at the bank. Do you see increases in prices? Look, you're seeing inflation, uh, but not the kind of wage growth. You know, it's the same story we've seen elsewhere. There is some wage pickup finally, but not the kind of growth that you would say, okay, inflation is now on an upward path. Where the Bank of England is seeing the potential for inflation to pick up is more from this, again, the sort of question marks around the potential of the economy. If we're going to have a long-term hit on productivity growth, on wealth growth, uh, from whatever deal we get uh, post 
um, having left the EU, you know, that is something that they have to bear in mind because they're thinking of two or three years out now when they're setting policy. Do you see prices increasing at stores you shop at? You know, we're not seeing uh, we're not seeing a big pickup in inflation as ever. In the UK, we're such an open economy that a lot of what we've seen in the last few years has been driven by the pound. If the pound took another tumble in response to the kind of shenanigans we were talking about earlier, you know, that's probably the biggest single driver of inflation. What did you you know? You know the cover is striking. Uh, you know, it, it, it's an abrupt. Uh, yeah, an abrupt photograph of, of Mr. Carney, and the title of it, Stress Tests, is actually important, not because of Brexit and all that, but just the banking system as well. How is the United Kingdom's banking system? You know, I was struck by talking to him that how much of our conversation was around the financial system. I mean, it's yeah. obviously it's it's often in those kind of sit-down sit interviews, it's a less uh, painful conversation than when you try and get them to say anything about monetary policy. But he is someone who came in as the head of the Financial Stability Board, a global board that was helping to push through the kind of post-crisis reform. So he's at it, his neck in this considerations around the stability of the financial system. And as he says in the interview, the UK was at the forefront a lot of the reforms and analysis around what do we need to do around stress tests and yeah. and what do we need to do about capital. I think the biggest concern coming out of Brexit for the financial system, which he did, we did, I did manage to push him on, is you go back to a system where the Europeans kind of have Brexit as an excuse to be to look inward. You know, the the, the, right. the UK has forced. Yeah the European system to be much more open uh, and to right. be a global cosmopolitan financial system because it had the L London at its centre. If you have London now in a more kind of semi-detached relationship, their instinct, the French instinct, the German instinct, is to bring yeah. activity onshore. Yeah. And that gives Europe a less healthy, less global financial system. Did you open, I mean, it's such a, 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 such a, a, a genuine interview where he really gives out a lot of information. Did you open this by talking to him about John Tavares going to the Maple Leafs? We didn't, amazingly. You didn't do didn't, that? But I was talking, you know, we know he's, he, well, ice hockey was actually the thing that he most, when, when all the school children interview him in uh, in London, they say in, in, in Britain, and they, he does these sit-downs with 12-year-olds who ask the great questions. But one of the, que one of the question was, uh, you know, what would you be if you weren't a central bank governor? And he said, oh, I'd really prefer to have been exactly. you know, a professional ice hockey player. But you he was get, always the number two. He was the sub, You got to get sub the, goalie. Exactly. You got to get the surveillance phone out and call me, and I would have said, just sit down with him and say, Tavares, Maple Leaf, Stanley Cup, right? <laughs> Steph Flanders, cover article Business Week with Mr. Carney. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.